Good morning. morning. Some of you heard it. We welcome you to Nineveh Christian Church today. Uh, We're glad that you're here with us, that you braved all the rain outside to come and join us this morning for worship. We're in the middle of a three-part sermon series that we're calling Turning Points. You can see behind me here, uh, we're we're talking about moments in Jesus' ministry that were turning points. My wife and I were discussing this uh, one day this week, and we were talking about, you know, what do you think of turning points when you think of Jesus's ministry? And the truth is, these are really going to be turning points for those who are following after Jesus. That maybe these weren't always moments that looked like big giant encounters in the ministry of Jesus. Maybe sometimes they were just simple encounters with people like the one that we're going to meet today. But the truth is, for those people that followed him, these were major turning points. And my goal and my hope is that for many who even maybe know the scriptures or in church, that maybe these might also be some turning point moments as we understand and have a better understanding of what it is to follow Christ in our lives. Last week we were in John chapter 1. We're going to continue these three sermons through the gospel of John. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there today to John chapter 4 is where we're going to be as we start this morning. Now last week we talked about Jesus in John chapter 1. John's ministry, the John the Baptist, his ministry is fading out as Jesus' ministry is starting. And Jesus is, is taking these guys, we see the first of his five disciples or so uh, that are brought to Jesus that come and start following him. He's in the early stages with men like Peter and Andrew and, and John and Philip and Nathaniel that we saw last week. And so uh, if you would, Sammy, put that up on the screen. We've got a picture here that's kind of a recap of basically everything from where we left off last week in John chapter 1 to where we're going to be today. You can still see it's very early on in the ministry of Jesus. He's just starting the the wheels in motion of what will eventually be his long three-year ministry on the earth, but we see some big things are happening. Now, I've given you a map here so that you can see primarily the areas that Jesus uh, was concerned with in his ministry. Most of where he traveled was in the two green regions, Galilee to the north and Judea to the south. You see up in Galilee, some towns like Capernaum, where Jesus' ministry, much of his ministry was based in Capernaum. Uh, Last week when they said, Father, uh, uh, Rabbi, where are you staying? That very well may have been Capernaum. Could have also been Nazareth, where Jesus was from, which you see is also in that Galilee region. Uh, Cana is where Jesus in John 2 uh, performs uh, a miracle in Galilee, his first miracle. Um, We named our daughter Cana after our first miracle. Um, That's in Cana in Galilee. Uh, Bethsaida, where it says Philip and and Andrew and some of those guys were from. But then down in Judea, you have Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Obviously, those are two big, important cities in the ministry and the life of Jesus. And so he spent a lot of time there as well. Look at John chapter 1. Uh, last week, we, we saw much of this. We saw John's Baptist, uh, John the Baptist's ministry in Bethany. We saw that he's handing over the reins of the ministry basically to Jesus. Uh, Jesus calls his first, he's baptized by John, and he calls his first disciples. 
Um, that's what we studied last week. In chapter 2 and 3, this is kind of what fills in the gaps. In chapter 2, we have this wedding in Cana of Galilee where Jesus performs his first miracle. He turns water into wine. And then it says, the Passover came. And so, where do Jews go for the Passover? They go to Jerusalem. And so, he traveled down south to Judea where he overturns the tables of the money uh, changers, the money lenders in the temple courts. And then in chapter 3, we believe he's still in Jerusalem as he talks to Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he teaches then on being born again. That's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. That's where that comes is with that encounter with Nicodemus. And then finally, we see this scene at the end of chapter 3 where John and Jesus, at the end of one's ministry and at the beginning of the other, are both baptizing in the Judean countryside. And so we're early on in Jesus's, the very first year, uh, first part of the first year of Jesus's three-year ministry. And that's where it takes us when we look in John chapter 4 this morning. We see what's happening and what causes him to be where he's going to be when we read our story. Because you see, the, the third region there that we didn't really mention, that red zone in the middle is Samaria. And that red zone in, that sits in between these two uh, places of prominence for Jesus' ministry, in between Galilee and Judea, that red zone is really where Jews were not supposed to go. Uh, Samaria was really not a place that Jesus had much contact with in his ministry, and for good reason. And yet today, that's actually what we're going to talk about, is uh, Jesus finds himself in a place that his followers, least of all, did not expect him to be. So let's turn then to the scripture. Let's turn to John chapter 4. We're going to start first with one of these transition verses that tells us where he's going. This is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Remember, they're both in the desert. They're both out baptizing. And it says, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And so he left Judea, that was in the south region, and went back once more to Galilee. Throw that picture up there one more time and we will see. He, it says he left Judea where he'd been with Nicodemus, where he'd been for the Passover. And he went once more where his ministry is going to uh, uh, take a lot of time, spend a lot of time in Galilee. And so he's heading once more into Galilee. But as he does, we're not going to be able to miss in John chapter 4 the fact that Jesus has to travel through Samaria. Like I said, this would have been a zone that Jews were not supposed to travel in. Really, you didn't have, I mean, what are you going to do here? You're going to cross the Jordan River. The truth was you didn't have much choice but to go through Samaria, even though this would have been a big deal for Jewish people in that day. So let's read our main passage today is John chapter 4, verses 24 uh, through 26. We're going to read through most of John chapter 4 today. And as we do, may we see what God has to say to us today. John chapter 4, verses 4 through 26. Now, he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than Jacob, our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go back, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation has come from the Jews. And yet a time is coming... And has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain all of this to us. And then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you, I am he. May God bless today the reading of his word. So this day, we're going to look at this, and it really, in Jesus' ministry, it really should have been an, an average, you know, just travel day, right? You have trips where you, you, you have a big itinerary, and, and you go, and you have days where we're seeing this on this day, and we're seeing this, but then in between, there's some days that are just travel days, right? It's just more about getting there. Once we get there, we'll see the sights, then we'll finish what we're doing, and I'm sure that that's what Jesus' disciples thought this was going to be, that this was just going to be... Uh, the, the necessary stops on the way to get to Galilee where we're really going. And yet this amazing encounter in John chapter 4 happens in Samaria where nobody would have expected Jesus to be spending his time and his ministry. And more than that today, this day in Sychar, make, Jesus makes an unlikely encounter. This is next in your notes if you're following along today. This is really the part of the story that we're going to focus on. Is not just where Jesus was, but who it is that Jesus comes into contact with. So it says, he engages a Samaritan woman. More than the fact that Jesus didn't do much in Samaria and Jews didn't travel much into Samaria if they could help it, more to the point today is who it is that Jesus is having this encounter 
with. So far, Jesus' ministry had primarily been limited, as we said, to the regions of Galilee and Judea. They were basically just stopping for food and water in Sychar on their way up through Samaria because John chapter 4 verse 4 actually says he had to go through Samaria. How else are you going to get it? You'd have to, otherwise you'd have to cross far out of your way. If they could have, I'm sure that the disciples would have picked a different route. But in this stop through in unfriendly territory, we notice today who it is that Jesus encounters. Look at verses 7 through 9 again. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman, she knew the deal, right? She understood, even if Jesus didn't. She knew what the deal was. And the Samaritan woman says to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John tells us, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now we could talk a lot about what it was about Samaria that, that made it an enemy territory to the Jews. What it was about uh, the Jews that were so uh, off-putting to the Samaritans and why the two had nothing to do with each other. We could really go all the way back to the days of Jacob who put that well there in the Old Testament. We could go back uh, to the days of the exile during the days of the divided kingdom in, in Old Testament times, uh, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Samaria then falls, as the northern kingdom falls, to the hands of the Assyrians. And in order to take over this territory, the Assyrians send some of their people into Samaria to take over that land. And they intermarry with the Jews that were left there. And so at best, you have this uh, half-Jew, half-Assyrian kind of race of people that are left in the time of Jesus' day that no Jews looked at and saw as Jews, as their own people. In fact, later we see the woman and Jesus are talking about they, they had their own places where they worshiped. We on this mountain, she says, and Jews in Jerusalem because they wouldn't worship together. They didn't see eye to eye. They didn't associate with one another. And yet here comes Jesus, the Son of God, a Jewish man who engages on purpose this woman who is a Samaritan. And by the way, don't miss the fact that not only is she a Samaritan, but she's a woman. And this in itself would be a major deal in that day, that it would be taboo not just to be in Samaria, but also to be in daylight with this woman by yourself at this well in a secluded area. And so Jesus is breaking a lot of cultural uh, rules right now by engaging this Samaritan and this woman. But that's not really the biggest issue here. Look at the next line in your notes. Look at what he does next. Not only does he engage a Samaritan woman, but he confronts her of her sins. Look at verses 10 through 18. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? 
Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, that sounds good, right? So this woman says, sir, give me that water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Here's where it gets real. Then Jesus told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. You see, not only was this a Samaritan woman that Jesus encountered this day, this was not even your average Samaritan woman. This was a, pretty unsa- a woman with a pretty unsavory past. And chances are, by the way, this is why she's here at this particular time at the well. Did you notice what verse 6 says? Look at John 4, 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, where are Jesus' disciples at this time? They have gone to get what? To get food in town, because this is lunchtime. And this would not have been water-drawing time. In fact, the women of Samaria would have come in the morning, before the heat of the day, in order to draw water. I don't think this is a mistake at all. I don't think the woman overslept and just missed her water drawing time. I think she's here on purpose to avoid running into the people in Samaria who would judge and condemn her for her past. And bam, she's going to run right into the Savior of the world. You see, this woman knew what the town thought of her. And instead of changing her ways... She looked for ways to avoid running into people in town. But that didn't keep Jesus from engaging her and from changing her life that day. And so to you today, to us today, I include myself that have a past of their own. Or maybe you have an addiction or a sin in which you're still swimming. Or something that you still have to to give back over to the Lord. I would say this. Jesus doesn't look for you to approach him only when you've got your life together. He wants to forgive you and cleanse you and and give you life, sins and all. He wants to take your sins and he wants to cleanse those sins from you. And guess what, church? There's never going to be a moment where I'm right enough to come to Jesus. Where I have my act together enough to then approach Jesus and then we can have an encounter. Jesus encounters and engages and forgives and loves this woman in the middle of her sin. Now, be sure he calls out her sin. He could have just loved her and just never brought up what he knew about her, which was she was currently living with somebody. And this was guy number six at the very least because she's had five husbands. He, he didn't have to bring this up. And so don't miss the point that while Jesus loves her, he does not gloss over the sin. He confronts the sin so that by bringing up the truth, this woman knows this guy is giving me the chance at life, not because he thinks I'm good, not because he understands that I've got everything together, but even in knowing my past, later she would know he, 
he, she would say, he knew everything about me. And he still comes to give me life. And today, church, I would say, you can't hide from God. God knows the stuff that I can't see. God knows everything about you, and he still desires to give you life. Number three, not only does he confront this woman's sins, but he also challenges her priorities. Verses 19 through 24. Sir, the woman said, by the way, this is right after the whole uncomfortable, how many husbands do you have thing? Uh, she says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, yet we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. You notice here what this woman does when Jesus brings up her sins. She tries to change the subject, right? When Jesus says, you know what? Actually, you don't have a husband. You, you, you're right, but let's not leave it there. How many husbands have you had? And now you're living with a guy that's not your husband, right? And so what does she say? Well, you know what? You sound like a prophet. Let's talk about something else, right? Let's talk about uh, where should we worship, right? She changes the subject into a political and a religious issue that really would have struck a nerve between the Jews and the Samaritans in that day. And boy, church, do we hide behind certain issues sometimes in the church. We do it today. When, when we're uncomfortable, when our sin would we be brought out, what do we do? We hide behind political issues and what you believe about uh, the things that are going on in the news. And we talk about our affiliations and where we belong. And we bring up debates and we bring up just stuff that just doesn't matter. To avoid facing the truth that we're in need of a Savior. Because see, if I bring up this other stuff and, and I seem to be on the right side of these other things, then maybe I can get around the fact that my life is a mess. And that my life needs the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't skirt the issue. Jesus addresses the issue, but he challenges her priorities by saying, this isn't about where you worship. This isn't about whether the Samaritans are right or the Jews are right. This is about the worshipers, how you worship God. It's not about what mountain you're worshiping on. He says, there's coming a day when it, all that's going to matter is you're worshiping God in spirit and in truth. He says, this is what the Father desires. There's something bigger here, Jesus says, one that is coming that will change all of that other stuff. The one who will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And that today leads us to what I find to be the most amazing thing that Jesus did for this woman that day at the well. Number four, he reveals his identity. He reveals his identity to this woman. Look at John verse four, uh, chapter 4 verse 10. 
Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this woman still thinks we're talking about water. And so later in verses 25 and 26, he spells it out even more. Look at what the woman says. She says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. You know what? Let's not debate over issues of worship. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. The Messiah is coming. He'll work all this out. In verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. You see, this is still very early in Jesus' ministry. He only has a handful of disciples that are following him in the early days of his ministry. The truth is, he hasn't fully revealed who he is to many people outside of those disciples. In fact, in, Jesus, in John chapter 2, we find this scene at the, the wedding at Cana in Galilee where Mary, Jesus' mother, comes and says, hey, they've run out of wine. You've got to do something here. And he says to his own mother, my time has not come yet. My time has not come to fully reveal who I am to the world. He goes back into Galilee. Why? Because in chapter 3, the Pharisees are starting to talk about him. The Pharisees are starting to talk about his ministry. And who's this guy that's out baptizing? And so Jesus is laying low. Jesus is not yet revealed to everyone who it is that he is and why he's here. And yet here he is alone with a sinful and disgraced Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. And he tells her outright who he is. He tells her right there in broad daylight, I am the Messiah. I am the one you're waiting for. Imagine that truth this day. Imagine that this truth would come to this woman. That right in front of you is the one who has come to save you of those sins. Right in front of you is the one that the people have been waiting for to redeem the world. Would that change the life of the person who makes that encounter? Should that change the life of the person who makes that encounter? Because let me tell you, church, we have the words of life. We're not waiting for the Messiah to be revealed. We're not waiting for some time for these things to be fulfilled. These things are fulfilled. We're waiting for him to return. We're waiting for the one who came and already laid down his life for us. And it's right in front of us. And some days we're focused on so many other things that we miss it. But this wasn't just a big day that day for the Samaritan woman. Let's look at the next section in your notes, which says this also is the day that Jesus teaches an important lesson to his disciples. We're going to look, we, we've looked already at what this, what the Messiah has to say to this sinful woman. But what about when his disciples come back into the scene. That's the next passage that we're going to read. Take a look then at John 4, verses 27 through 38. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, 
Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And then they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, let's look at the disciples. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Today, I hope we learn this same lesson that Jesus is showing his disciples in John chapter 4. This day, Jesus teaches the disciples, this is the next line in your notes, it's a lesson about the Father's work. This is a lesson about the Father's work. They think it's about something else, right? They're not getting it. But look at what he says in verse 34. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. See, the first thing that the disciples notice when they get back to Jesus at the well is that, number one, he's been talking to a woman. Uh Uh-oh, this is not good. What are we going to do? But they, even they knew well enough not to say, well, what do you want or what are you doing? Or, hey, do you know who this is you're talking to? But then, what do they get fixated on? They get worked up about food. Could somebody else have brought him food? Where did he get food? We were, we were supposed to go get him food. And so Jesus shows them this day, the next line in your notes, it's not about food and drink. Jesus has truth to speak this day, and it is the opposite of what everybody here thinks that we're dealing with. It's not about food and drink. This whole scene starts with water, right? The Samaritan woman, nor Jesus himself, would have been at Jacob's well at Sychar that day if they didn't need water. That's why both of them are here at a well. They didn't meet out at a coffee shop at a Starbucks. They met at a well to draw water. And yet, Jesus tells this woman, it's not about the water that you've come to draw. Look at John verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Because she's still thinking this is about water. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, then the woman said... Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. 
Jesus is sitting here with this woman and saying, it's not about water. This is about living water. This is about something greater than water, than the water that you seek. And this woman still says, hey, if I can get the water you're talking about, then I won't have to come at 12 o'clock and draw at this well. I won't have to deal with the women that would come and draw water and judge me and look at me critically. This, this is a great fix. And Jesus says, this isn't about water. This is about something that will give you more than this water will ever do. This is about eternal life. You know how I know this encounter this day was not about water? Because look at what happens to this woman when she finally understands. John chapter 4 verses 28 through 29. And then leaving her water jar... The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This woman that day is only there because she's got to draw water. She has to drink water. She doesn't want to go when everybody else in town is coming. And yet at the end of this encounter, she leaves the very reason that she came. At the end of this encounter, she's not worried about water at all. She leaves the jar. And where does she go? To those people she's been worried about encountering. And she says, I met a guy who knew everything about me. I think, I think we found the Messiah. And so one down in Samaria that day, we've got one woman who finally gets it, who finally understands who it is that she's talking to. And that this water stuff really isn't as important as she thought. Meanwhile, let's look at what the disciples are worried about. But here come the disciples and they're worried about food. John 4, 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone else have brought him food? My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He's just got done convincing this woman that this is not about water, that this is about something better I can give you than water, something that can well up in your life and produce eternal life. And then here come the guys, here come disciples, and they're like, well, where did he get food? Because they still don't see you see, they understood who he was. We saw that last week. They knew that he was the Messiah, and yet guess what? They didn't understand why he came. They knew who he was, and they didn't understand why Jesus came, that it wasn't about food and drink. It wasn't about, their job wasn't to take care of him and his ministry. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus was fully God and at the same time fully man, which means he had to eat. He needed food to live just like you and I. But this encounter that day, this ministry, those three years was not about food. This was about doing the Father's work. In church, so many times we as a church get caught up in so many other side issues and so many other debates and so many other things that we miss. It's not about that. This is about that which Jesus gives that will in us produce eternal life. This is about doing the Father's work as he called Jesus and as he called us to do. 
So what is the Father's work? I think most of us would probably give the easy churchy answer that the Father's work was for Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And that is true. But I don't think that's what Jesus means here. Let me show you why. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is at the end of his ministry. This time we are fast-forwarded almost three years to the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, the night that they are going to come and arrest him, and he will eventually, that next day, lay down his life on the cross. And look at what he says as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he may give eternal life to all those that you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now take a look at verse four. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. How is it that Jesus could say to the Father that he finished the work that God gave him to do before he lays down his life on the cross, atoning for the sins of mankind? You see, it was God's will and God's purpose for all mankind that for Jesus to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But the truth is, Jesus could have done that at any time. Jesus could have come at 30 years old instead of 33 and sacrificed his life. Jesus could have come as a boy if all it took was for a, a, a holy without sin, blameless man from God to die for the sins of the world? Why then the three-year ministry? Why then did he spend three years with these disciples ministering in Galilee, ministering in Judea before going and doing the Father's work? Because the truth is, the Father's work was not just about what was to come. The Father's work was what he was doing while he was here. So what was it about? It's not about food and water. We've already got that. We already understand that the disciples and this woman, they're on the wrong track that day. But Jesus tells us what it's about. So the next line in your notes. It's about sowing and harvesting. Look again at John chapter 4, verses 34 through 38. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open up your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. And thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you this is Jesus talking to his disciples. I sent you not to get food, but to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. See, I've got to believe that this was one of the turning points in Jesus' ministry for his disciples. Even if they didn't see it then. Even if it wasn't clear until much later in his 
ministry. Because this day, not only is Jesus opening up the door for Gentiles eventually to come to faith, he's opening the, the message of Jesus and, and fully reveals his identity to a Samaritan woman. But he also tells them, this is about the work of the Father. You've, you've followed me not because of who I am and not because I am among you. Because guess what? There's coming a day when Jesus was not going to be among them any longer. This is about Jesus beginning the work of the kingdom of God. This is the ministry of Jesus, which was about sowing seeds and spreading the word of God so that when Jesus did die and return to the Father, the work of Christ would continue and spread and grow until as many people as possible would know life through the giver of life. And church, that work is not over today. This work is not something that Jesus did and now we hope everybody gets it and now we just sit back and we wait for God to return and take his people to be in heaven. This is work that if the Father has not returned, the church is to continue his work. The work of sowing seeds. The work of sowing and planting and then on the other side, reaping and harvesting. The work of seeing as many lives as possible come to that saving life in the life giver. Let me ask you, church, is it enough for you to know life through the giver of life? And then, well, once I've got it, I've checked that off. My life's purpose is complete. I sit back in my rocking chair and wait for Jesus to take me. Or has he given his church work to do? Are we still about the work of planting seeds so that those around us would know that truth that has given us life and that truth would set them free and that truth would then produce fruit in their lives that would go out and sow seeds into whole other fields where I would never have the opportunity because this is the work of the kingdom of God. Let's close today with the last passage we're going to look at in John chapter 4. And this is, we, we saw a little bit of this last week. This is what comes as a result of this woman's encounter with Jesus that day. John chapter 4, verses 39 through 42. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And Jesus, a Jewish man, stayed in Samaria for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to this woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard it for ourselves. And now we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Church, this is the work of the Father. To sow seeds. And you know what? You may not reap the harvest of those seeds. Last week, uh, I, I was blessed to, to perform a baptism. And this lady has been coming to our church. But I didn't plant those seeds. 
I just so happened to be here Sunday to preach the sermon. This sweet woman comes down and says, the Lord is doing an amazing work in my life. And guess what? Because I'm working in the kingdom of God, I'm blessed to harvest that that moment. I get to harvest that seed that's been planted by others, but that's been cultivated by the Lord because we're part of the church that is outdoing the work of God. And some of those seeds you're planting out in your places of work. You're planting in your communities. You're planting them out wherever you are, places that, that I may never be able to be. And maybe you're not harvesting that crop right away. Maybe you're seeing a harvest you didn't plant. The truth is, if the church is doing its work, it is continuing to sow and harvest seeds of those that would know him and come to life through the giver of life until he returns for his church. And did you notice that the seeds that day that eventually came to this small town in Samaria that they were sown not by those disciples who were there with Jesus. In fact, they would have gotten out if they could. They couldn't believe that he was talking to that woman. They didn't sow those seeds. Who sowed the seeds? They were sowed and eventually reaped by Jesus by a sinful, disgraced Samaritan woman. Because she understood what it was to know life. And she came to bring that to them. And so today, do you think Jesus can't use you to bring his message to others? Is there doubt in your heart that Jesus would use you because you're too young or because you're too old or because you're a woman or because you're uneducated or because you're somehow inferior? Church, that is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does. And the disciples that day, those who should have got it, those who should have known what the work is they were there to do, they didn't see it. And this entire Samaritan village comes to faith in Christ because of a sinful woman that didn't even want to draw water near them. I'm going to ask Corey and the band to come out as we close today. And as we do, church, I want to challenge you. This past week, I challenged you to read with me, to spend time as the disciples did with the giver of life, to read John chapter 1 with me, and, and to pray about who it is that God desires for you to invite to come and see. And so today as we close, here's the challenge for you. Are we walking in Christ? If we're walking in Christ then we must be doing the work of the Father. And so today, my request, my challenge of this church is one simple prayer every day this week. If you still got your pens, I know I heard all the clicking happening earlier, but get your pens back out and write down this one word. Pray this week. See, you hear them. Pray this week for opportunities. Pray this week every day this week for opportunities for you to be a seed sower in your life, for you to maybe be a part of something that God is harvesting. Ask God for opportunities to be involved in the Father's work. And then just, you know what? Just wait and see if he doesn't answer that prayer. To pray this week 
for opportunities. And when you do, open your eyes, church. Jesus says, open your eyes because the fields are ripe for harvest. Church, open your eyes. There's a a ripe field of harvest in your workplace. There's a field that's white for harvest in your neighborhood, in your community, in your group of moms, at your classroom, in your whatever it is that you do, there is a harvest that if you are a part of the work and the kingdom and the body of Christ that he desires for you to be doing. And so we pray for opportunities today is another opportunity. An invitation is coming. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if you have not given your life to Christ today, come and see what he would do in your life. Come and see. But, but today, if you are walking in Christ, then may we be praying in this moment that God would show us what it is that he would have us to do as we continue the Father's work.